Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 8 through 9 today. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. And uh, as you turn there, I just want to share this with you. You've seen this quote a hundred times from us between Jeff and myself. And it's one of my favorites because it speaks to my heart. It convicts me. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones Uh, so maybe we won't have a quote. <laughs> Got it there, Chris. Just talk amongst yourselves for a minute. Just stare awkwardly at it. <laughs> There we go. And do we have it on, Chris? And do I got it? Uh, yeah, there we go. Cool. This is uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, reflecting on Psalm 42, the passage, Why So Downcast, O My Soul? And uh, the psalmist is talking to himself. And Lloyd-Jones reflects on that. Have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are there talking to you, Right? They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment, the psalmist in Psalm 42, is this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are thou downcast, O my soul, he asked. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must turn on yourself, abrade yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God has done. And what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say to this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance who is also the health of my countenance and my God. Lloyd-Jones in that passage kind of captures the gist of Philippians 4, 8 through 9. Let me read it to us as we begin. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So God, I pray today that you truly will take your word and plant it deep in us, convict us and challenge us. And God, help us to know that these these truths, that the God we place our faith in, God doesn't change and shift like the things of this world. And so we can anchor ourselves and anchor our hearts and anchor our thoughts in the truth of your word and in the truth of who you are. God, I pray that during these next few minutes that your spirit would truly speak to us, God, that if there's anything on these note pages that I 
that does not need to be said, God, or whatever, that your spirit would just help me not to see those things, help those things not to be said, and that you would just guide and direct our thoughts in accordance with your will and your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So I want to start with a story, and I want to preface the story with this. Um, my dad is a very intelligent man, very smarter than I am. Okay, my dad is a chemical engineer. Uh, he taught physics. Smart guy. All right. Uh, he he uh, was involved in um, bringing processes from Britain over to the United States, uh, uh, different chemical processes. He was a guy, uh, he'd get calls uh, different times of the day, at night, if there was a chemical spill somewhere on a highway or something. My dad would be one of the guys who'd get a phone call saying, hey, this is what spilled. What is it? How do we neutralize it? What's the danger? Um, you know, that, that type of thing. He was left in Ma- when the, the company shut down their plant in Massachusetts. My dad was left there to oversee the shutdown um, to make sure that the plant was in, in keeping up with the, the state of Massachusetts and all the regulations environment. So he's a, he's a smart guy, okay? So the story I'm about to tell next in no way, shape, or form reflects on my dad's level of intelligence, and I want to be very clear on that, okay? So we had a work day at our church, and it's been, I think I calculated 17 years since I've used this illustration at church, so I think I'm safe. Maybe a couple of you have heard it, but it's been a while. Um, so we had a work day at our church one day, and uh, when I was in high school, and there was a field out behind the church that we were, as part of the work day, we were going to mow. And so there was this huge riding lawnmower sitting on a trailer there in the church parking lot. And it was sitting on a single axle trailer that was not hooked up to a vehicle. So it was, the t- t- it was tilted down, resting on the tongue, tractors on there. And I wanted to drive it. I wanted to cut this. So they're like, yeah, you can do it. So I got up in the driver's seat of this tractor. And all of a sudden it occurred to me, wait a minute, th- this tractor is uh, on this trailer. And I back up, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to flip this way. And uh, I'm like, hey, Dad. He's like, what? I'm like, Hey, I think the thing's going to snap up, right? When I, when I back up, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it is. So this, again, my dad's very intelligent. So that's what makes what happens next so puzzling. Um, my dad says, I'll just, I'll stand on the, on the end of the trailer. So as you back up, uh, you know, it, it'll, it'll be okay. My dad weighs about 180, 190 lawn tractor. <laughs> Weighs more than that. Sure enough, I get to start it up. I'm all excited. I'm like, I get to drive the tractor. And um, I start backing it up. And sure enough, get to, and I wasn't going slow, you know, because I'm the team. I'm like, ah, tractor. All of a sudden, that trailer flips up. I hear the sound. And I'm driving, looking back, and I look. Dad's not there. I found him. <laughs> and I look up, and Dad went straight up. I mean, that thing just launched him. I mean, and I'm watching him I'm like, and he went straight up and came straight down. And he landed right on the tongue of that tractor. And it caught him right here, and it ripped a perfect V up his leg. You could see the bone. The flesh was like, and it, okay, and I'm done. Um, but it was bad. Uh, someone asked me, did, like, did he break the bone? I'm like, no, but you could, and we knew it wasn't broken because you could see it. Um, you know, didn't need an x-ray. <laughs> it was like, oh, no, it's, uh, um, oh, it was so bad, so bad. And so here's the thing, right? Uh, bad thinking and bad practice go together. And that's what Paul's getting at in Philippians chapter 4. If we don't think well, if we don't think right, we're not going to act right. 
And generally, that does not leave us in a good place. I wish we had time today to unpack this, and we don't. I had it in my sermon, and then when I practiced it, this was like 10 minutes worth of content. I'm like, ah, this is killing me, but I had to cut it out. This is just a sandwich. Paul has a ton to say about the mind and thinking throughout his epistles. Here is just a sampling, um, okay? And uh, we had one of them uh, read for us here just a few minutes ago from 2 Corinthians. Paul has a lot to say about the mind, a lot. I'd encourage you to take a peek at these passages at some point if you get a chance because they will be uh, an encouragement to you and a challenge to you. But what Paul's getting at here in Philippians is a continuation of what he says throughout his epistles. Our life is about a battle of our mind. It's about a battle, the battle uh, for our mind. It's where everything starts. It's where everything flows out of, right? Jesus says out, out of the heart um, is, is where everything flows. It's out of what we think about. Many of our challenges in life flow out of wrong thinking, right? Interpersonal tension often flows out of wrong thinking, Anxiety and doubt often flows out of worrying about things that may or usually do not ever happen. Wrong views of self contribute to low self-esteem and lack of confidence, which then hinders us in our service to Christ. Dwelling on impure thoughts uh, leads to sin and often to sinful actions. Anger, which is a form of wrong thinking, leads to destruction. And even overvaluing, this term we love to throw around in Christianity, even overvaluing peace in our decision-making processes can be wrong thinking. So this, this epistle, this letter of Philippians, whose theme is joy, tells us what to do in order to possess that joy. So a couple weeks ago, right, Jeff focused on prayer and thanksgiving as an antidote uh, to anxiety and to help us find joy. As the passage continues, Paul adds to that, and we add to prayer and thanksgiving, um, thinking right and doing right. And together, these things are the key to finding joy in our lives. So thinking and doing are the two controlling verbs in Philippians 4, 8 through 9. Think on these things and practice these things. Think and do. They're the two controlling verbs in verses 8 through 9. Now, it's interesting the way Paul uh, structures it. Because in our minds, and the way we normally talk, we would, we would say, you know, think on these things and give the list, and then we'd say, practice these things, and we give the list, right? So, like Paul, it's almost like Yoda wrote it. It's like, he starts with the, uh, you know, joy and peace, think on these things, and, and he goes backwards, that was for you, Trey. Um, and, but, but really, it's emphasis. He, he's emphasizing, here are the things, and think about it. And the way it's structured, he's emphasizing each of these things as individual characteristics, for us to be disciplined about adding to our thought life. So what are we commanded to think on? Well, he starts with this one. Whatever is true. Whatever is true. So this means truth in a broad and comprehensive sense. It means truth in all areas of our lives. So, of course, it starts with the word of God, right? Think on truth. I think on God's revealed word. I think on the scriptures. But it expands beyond that, this word does. It expands to rationally thinking about life and rejecting irrational and baseless thinking. So when he says think on truth, yes, it's the word of God, but it's it's bigger than that. Think on what is true. So let's talk about the word of God for a minute, right? John 17, 17 and Psalm 119, 11. My thinking must be rooted in the word of God. 
And for my thinking to be rooted in the Word of God, I have to spend time in it. I have to become familiar with it. R. Kent Hughes writes, You cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. I don't know the Word of God. I can't be influenced by it. John 17, 17 then, right? Sanctify them in truth, Jesus says. Your Word is truth. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is where my mind must dwell. This is the foundation of everything. I think on truth. I think about what God has said. I must constantly be exposed to it. Through things like personal reading, through my devotions, right? This is the things we start telling kids when they're little kids. Do your devos. It's the most churchy Sunday school thing sounding ever. Do your devos. And it's the most important, most foundational thing ever. Spend time in God's word. That's what shapes your mind. It shapes your thinking. We need to spend time hearing preaching and teaching, right? Where I can hear people expounding on the word of God outside of myself. I need to hear other people interpreting and applying God's word because they're going to see things that I don't see. They're going to hit blind spots that I, that I have that they don't have. I can't tell you how many times I've sat and I've listened to a preacher or someone uh, like speak on a passage. I've, I've read and spoke on 800 times, and I'm sitting there, and they say something, and I'm like, I, and it makes me so mad sometimes. You know, like I, I never thought, John Piper drives me out. Like, how do you see that? Like, I've read that my whole life, and I didn't see that, right? But, but it's so good for us. Like, oh, that's... that's that's a blessing. Man, I, I, don't, I wouldn't have thought about it that way. Like, that's so good. I need that exposure. I need to hear the word of God uh, taught. I need godly brothers and sisters who will speak it to me. I need to be surrounded by the word. There's other, we have so many other resources that we can listen to it. We have podcasts available with good people speaking God's word. Christian music. Um, there was a study, uh, I told the, the parents in the uh, parent meeting back at the beginning of the year, there was a study done not too long ago uh, where they, they literally interviewed and researched thousands of, of people who are older now um, and who are walking with the Lord, and they tracked their faith journeys. So they wanted to find characteristics of these people, things that were in place in their life from middle school on up, and why didn't they walk away from their faith in college, and, and so on and so forth. And they put together, they compiled this list of characteristics. Number one, not surprising at all, it was if they cultivated a daily devotional time in middle school and high school, their chances of staying with uh, the faithful in their walk with the Lord was ex- greatly increased as they went on. That was the number one common denominator. Not surprising, based on this, right? One of the ones that was surprising, I believe it was number four. Number four was listened to Christian music. It's fascinating, right? Why? It makes sense. Again, music's such a powerful uh, venue or uh, medium anyway, but then, yes. God's truth being communicated. Sometimes I'm not even totally paying attention, but I'm hearing God's truth. So the point is this. Are you putting yourself in a position to learn from God's truth? Are you hearing God's truth? Are you in the word? Are you exposing yourself to God's truth in that way? Next, we think about truth, thinking on truth. My thinking about others must be characterized by truth. How often do we assume other people's thoughts and motives? We do this a lot. They're doing that because, or I know what they're thinking. No, you don't. You have no idea what they're thinking. But we assume, oh, they're just doing that because. How do you know that? You don't. 
We often get sucked into worrying about what other people are thinking about us, right? This is another way this manifests itself, right? Well, everybody is thinking this about me. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll biff a song on Sunday morning. I'll start it in the wrong key. I'll forget the words. And then, like, or I'll, I'll preach what I feel is a terrible. I get in the car, and I'm like, oh. I know, like, today, everyone from church is sitting around their dinner tables talking about how bad Pastor Craig stinks. Like, I'm the worst. Pa- I just need to go. I just need to get a di- I was going to go work at Meyer. Uh, I shouldn't be a pastor anymore. They're all talking about me. Okay, first of all, I'm not that important. And, like, thinking on truth says to me, like, probably nobody's talking about you over lunch today. But we do this, right? Are we, like, we walk in and we're like, they all think I'm there. It's not thinking on truth. It's assumption. It's being very presumptuous. Think on truth. This is like one of the number one things heard in our house. Like this person did this, this, like, and we're all, you know, Kathy's a great job of this, and my girls, we're all doing all stuff. Like, are you thinking on what's true? Do you know that that's true? Did, did you really, did, do you know that your teacher thought is really thinking that? When, well, no. Then stop. It's not true. You don't know it's true. Don't waste the time doing it. Think on what is true. How often do we this too? We hear something, or um, we'll get an email or a text, and we'll be like, what did they mean when they said that? What do they mean? And what do we do? Hey, Matt, I got this text from Scott. What do you, I, I'm like, what do you think he means? And like, Matt's looking at it like, oh, dude. And I'm like, I think he means, and Scott's like, yeah. Or, you know, Matt's like, I think he means that too. And now you got two ignorant people talking about what they don't know. You're, you're not ignorant, Matt. Um, right? And like, like, but we do this. What do you think, Dan, what do you think he meant when he said that? I, Dan doesn't know. Why am I sucking in into it? What? Novel concept. If I don't know what someone meant in a text or an email or phone call, what should I do to get to truth? Go back to the... Think on truth. Think on truth. And I'm the worst of this. All right, I'm like, what do they mean by the name? Why aren't they responding to my text? They hate me. They hate the church. They're leaving. They're gone. No, they were in the bathroom. You know, I mean, it was like... But we, but we do this. Think on what is true. My thinking about my circumstances and my future must be characterized by truth rather than worry and anxiety, right? I cannot get sucked into what might be. I can't get sucked into worry. Worry about the future and tomorrow always leads to fear. And fear is Satan's greatest weapon as it paralyzes me, it discourages me, it demoralizes me. Listen, right? I don't know about you. Today for me is generally enough of a mess. (laughs) I don't need to manufacture possible outcomes in my mind that create even more stress. That probably aren't even come to pass anyway. Right? So Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Right? But we do this. There's a, a friend of mine who teaches over a Bible over at North Point, and he talks about Rabbi Google. Right? We always go like, oh, I have a question. I have a problem. I'm going to go to, to my rabbi. It's Google. I'm going to type the question in and ask Google what the answer is. That, no, don't make Google your rabbi. He's a bad rabbi. She's a bad It's a bad rabbi. Whatever. I don't, no Google. But I do this, right? And, and my, my wife, she, worries, she has her share of things that she worries about. One of them is not medical. I think it's her nursing background or whatever. My wife, she's so good about this. I'd be like, are you worried about, you know, whatever? Like, no, we don't know. Like, I'm not going to, 
worry about it until I know what it is. Like, so for me, like I had my shoulder surgery and then I, I heard it again. And so like, before I even get the MRI, I'm like, I think I tore it again. So what am I doing? I'm on Google and I'm, I'm asking Google, I'm like, second rotator cuff surgeries. And it's like, and you know what, all the, it's like recovery, very minimal. Uh, getting the percentage back, you know, coming back to 100% probably not going to, it's all this negative stuff. And I'm like, I'm never going to lift with Marco again. I can't, it's not going to work. My softball days are over. I'm not going to be able to like, catch in the backyard with Zach. And then he's going to have this like dad-deprived childhood. And have it, right? And this is what we do. And Kathy's like, oh my word, get off Google. Like, stop it. I got like this little thing in my throat a couple of years ago. Like I, could, like, I felt like something was there. And I'm like, what's wrong with my throat? I Google it. You know, like the first thing, cancer. I'm like, you know, and I never, Kathy's like, stop it, like, get off Google, like, so, but we do this, and we worry, and we go into these other sources, and, and we're called to think on truth, think on truth, next, whatever is honorable, this word means noble, think about what's worthy, what's venerable, what's holy, what's above reproach, what characterized disciplined and measured conduct. This is all kind of in this word noble. The words translate a couple other places in the New Testament as dignity. It's the, it's the characteristic in Titus where it describes one of the characteristics that Timothy and young men were to pursue. So in this I say I will think about honorable and noble things that will lead me to be disciplined in my mind. I'll pursue thinking that is characterized by dignity and discipline. I will think about things, ideals, people, stories that lift my mind from the cheap tawdry and transient. So if I'm watching garbage, my mind is going to think about garbage, but I want to fill it with things that are noble. It affects how I think. It affects how I live. That's why when we went to Estonia a couple weeks ago, Kathy and I had this conversation. One of the great blessings is sitting there and, and, and having meals with missionaries and hearing their stories. And there's this, I could give several examples, but um, there's one missionary, her name is Holly Friesen. She's been in Ukraine for uh, since 2010-ish, 2009-ish. And when we did our first um, trip back in 2010, Kathy and I met Holly after the first session. And she was sitting um, like right over about where Kimball's are sitting and she was crying after the service ended, and we went over and just started talking to her, and she said, I just, she'd just been on the mission field a few months, and she said, it's just so hard. And, and coming and singing in English, I just didn't, and it was overwhelming, and we had a great conversation. So anyways, we, we've, we've had a special relationship with Holly ever since then. And she's in Ukraine, she was in Ukraine, ministering in the villages and so on, and, and her story and her faithfulness is awesome. And one of the things Kathy and I talked about before we went, she goes, there's certain people, can, we, can you please like, have dinner with these people, with Hannah? So that Hannah can hear, I want Hannah to hear Holly's story. And so we sat, I grabbed her like right away, one of the first times. I said, hey Holly, can Hannah and I have dinner with you? And she's like, yeah, let's do it tomorrow night or whatever. And we get to sit there and Hannah's hearing Holly tell her story about ministry in Ukraine and about fleeing Ukraine as Russian missiles are flying overhead. And, 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 but then hearing Holly express her trust in God and hearing Holly say, God is using it. As people are going to church who never would have gone to church. People are getting saved. And so she's crying and there's a brokenness and a pain there, but there's also this joy. And I'm sitting there going, this is noble. This is, I want my daughter to hear this. I want my daughter to see this. Right? This is why I want my kids at, at Diane Seitzma's funeral. That's why I want my kids at Kelly Cook's funeral. Right? Funerals are, no. 
whatever's noble, you hear their stories of their faithfulness and so on, expose them to that, expose my mind to those things. That inspires me, that helps me, that lifts my eyes and my mind to higher things. Whatever's honorable, whatever's just, uh, the lexical definition for this, it, it involves fulfilling my obligations, being faithful to the law, conforming to the life and teaching of Jesus. It's a righteousness that stands out from the world. And like truth, this is also a broad term and includes thinking about just doing the right thing. So yes, it includes doing what God says and doing God's commands, but it also expands beyond that. Just, I'm going to do what is right. I'm going to fulfill obligations. I need to think in that way because generally my thinking is more characterized by pragmatism. I think pragmatically. What will benefit me first rather than what is righteous or what is best Obligation is the key word here. It's not always about what I think or feel, because often my feelings and my thinking is wrong, right? If I often ex- only exercise when I felt like it, probably 50% of the time. If I only ran when I felt like it, like 1%. I'm sorry, Matt. I, you love running. I'm not, I, like, if, and it may not even be 1%. I'm like the whole time, I step on the treadmill, I get on the road, and like, like literally two seconds in, I'm like thinking about like how much I hate this and can't wait till it's done. You know? Make myself do things. And we need to merge this. Let me take a second here too. We need to merge this. I alluded to this a minute ago. There's this term we, we use a lot in our Christian decision making that I think is really misunderstood and misplaced. This, this, this whole concept of peace. That peace must be feeling good about a decision, having peace about a decision, must be the prerequisite to the decision. And I would suggest to you, first of all, this. Nowhere in Scripture do you find peace as being the prerequisite for decision-making. Now, God gives us peace, and he uses it. But here's a better way to think about it, I think. Peace isn't and shouldn't be the precursor to my decision-making. Peace comes as a result of thinking and doing rightly. We're going to see that right here in our own passage, right? So when we made a phone call several years back that radically changed our family, bringing someone else in on it, I could tell you, that phone call, I did not have peace. I told the social worker, I don't have peace. But here's the thing. We can have clarity without peace. And when I make the right decision, knowing it's right, regardless of the dissonance that I feel or the anxiety I feel, peace comes afterwards. So as you go through challenges and difficulties after the fact, it doesn't feel good. There's aspects of our lives right now that don't feel good. It's not peace in that sense. But I have peace. I have peace. Because I did what was right. I did what I knew God called me to. You, you want an example? Look no further than the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus did not feel peace in the Garden of Gethsemane. You don't sweat drops of blood and weep and say, Father, if possible, remove this cup from me. If you feel peace. Jesus didn't feel peace, but he had clarity. And he knew that peace would come. The joy set before him. He achieved peace. Right? Thinking on what is right. What is the right thing to do? You look at the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 2, 3. I was with you in weakness, fear, and much trembling. Well, many people would say, I didn't feel peace. I had fear and weakness and trembling. Therefore, I'm not going to go there and preach. Paul's like, I had that. But he went 
And he preached. Why? He had clarity. He was thinking about what is right. 2 Corinthians 7, 5, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. It's not peace. But he did what was right. He did what God had called him to do. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, Paul speaks of anxiety. He talks about the daily pressure of anxiety over his ministry to the churches. But he still ministered. So he didn't have peace in the way that we often misuse it. I can tell you at the end of his life, Paul had peace because of the choices that he made. So peace and a lack of dissonance should not be the ultimate test of practice or the will of God. All right? I do what is right. I think on what is right. And I act on that. That's what Paul's calling us to. I can tell you this. The guy I've pastored with for 23 years here at this church would not be here if peace was the ultimate part of decision making. Jeff Bird did not feel like God wanted him at this church. He did not feel peace about being at Forest Hills Baptist Church. He was going to the mission field. Some guys sat him down, some of our deacons, and said, Jeff, this is what we feel. This is what's best for the church. This, 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 this. And Jeff said, and, and he made the decision. I feel like it's what is right even though it's not necessarily what I feel like I should do. John. John Marco's in a position right now at Cornerstone. John doesn't, wouldn't choose to be in. Can I say, is all right, John, John? John was emotionally upset when he was called and was asked to leave the classroom. That's where John found his peace and his contentment and his joy. But when he was asked to do this job, John said, this is what's best for the institution and for the school moving forward. And he made a choice, not based on necessarily peace, but based on what is right, obligation. That's what Paul's calling us to think on. Whatever's just, whatever's pure, this is moral blamelessness, whatever's clean. It speaks to sexual purity, but it also includes all areas of ethical purity, words, and actions. It also includes my sincerity and my motives. Think about this in regard to just our media choices what we allow our minds to think on and be exposed to. R. Kent Hughes writes this about our media and entertainment. It has become increasingly eroticized, violent, and intolerant of Jesus Christ. And given that there is virtually no distinction between the viewing habits of Christians and non-Christians, the minds of countless Christians have become increasingly eroticized and blasphemous. What is pure, right? The passage there, 2 Corinthians 11, 2, it uses the same word. It's the same word that Paul uses in Philippians. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. We understand what that means, that pure virgin. And that's what Paul's calling us to be in our minds, pure. To not allow things, impure thoughts, impure motives to motivate me, impure thoughts to dwell there. And so that's why, like, I make no apologies when I'm sitting there with my family watching the Super Bowl. I'm like, we're not watching halftime. Because that in no way, shape, or form reflects this value or this virtue of purity. That's what God's calling my mind to think on. What is pure? Right? What do you need to chase out of your life to pursue this? Whatever is lovely, whatever is lovely, pleasing, agreeable, Lovely, amiable. Think about true and genuine beauty. What is truly beautiful? This is what I want my daughters to think about. What's true beauty? 
So what the world says, no, I want to think about what true and genuine beauty is, and I want to implement that in my life. Uh, what is commendable? Now think about words and works and persons that are admirable. What is kind? What, what, are peop- what do people speak well of? When I, say, when I say Trey's a really good guy, like why do I say that? What are the characteristics of that? I'm like, ah, those are characteristics I want to emulate. When I think like, oh, someone's a historical figure, man, that was a really good pr- like why? Like, okay, what ca- so I want to learn from those characteristics and those qualities. I want to think on those. Maybe it's their integrity. Maybe it's their, their strength of character. Maybe it was their courage. Those are the things that I want to seek about. What The things that people speak well of in others. I want, I want those so that I can bring glory to God and do the right thing. So then there's a summary statement, right? Think about anything excellent or praiseworthy. Kind of throws it out, all-encompassing. It's totality of what I think on. Or I'm sorry, moral, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. Anything excellent or praiseworthy, I want you to think about these things. The word think then, the command that follows. Reason, let one's mind continually dwell on. This requires a lifetime of discipline and determined activity. This isn't easy. This isn't easy. The battle for the mind is not easy. The word, uh, the Greek word is logizomai. It's a mathematical term that's derived from that. What does it sound like? Logizomai? Logarithm. Right? Logarithm. A logarithm. You look at it. It's a problem. You think about it. You concentrate on it. You focus it. You try to solve it. It's not a, you just don't look at it and boom, I got the answer. And it's, it's calling us to that level of work and concentration. And it's a process that's going to take your entire life. Deliberately focusing on and working out these things like you would a math problem. Instead of focusing on and letting my mind dwell on what the world says to dwell on. Self, pleasure, power, money, sex, etc. I'm going to dwell on characteristics like these that are characterized by humility, goodness, self-sacrifice, truth, right motives, etc. So then Paul turns the page. And again, this is related. Do. The things that you have learned and received... And the things you have seen and heard, and most commentators see a distinction here, they see these two pairs, learned and received as speaking to like kind of instructions, teaching. The things I've taught you, classroom type setting. And then the things that you have seen, the example that I've lived out before you. I think what Paul's doing is he's saying, think on these things. And then he says, the example you've seen in me, which is these things, live that out. Again, I want you to remember, this isn't written by a guy who had an easy life. It'd be really easy for saying, well, that's easy for Paul to say, but he doesn't struggle with this, this, is No, any guy who writes what he fears without, fears within, any guy who writes 2 Corinthians, I'm, I we're crushed, or persecuted, not crushed, struck down, not abandoned. Uh, he speaks about dragging himself somewhere to preach the gospel, like his own inadequacies, the thorn in the flesh. Like Paul did not have an easy life. Paul had to say, I had to learn contentment. You know what that implies? That there's a point in his life where he didn't have contentment. He had to learn contentment. So Paul is saying, do what I have done and do it the way I have done it. And Paul's life and testimony communicates to us that it is possible Live out what I've communicated to you. Put it into practice. Put it into practice. Oops, got ahead of myself again there, sorry. Put it into practice. That's the second controlling verb. 
And what this means is doing it over and over and over and over again. Repetitive. Coming to church and just sitting and hearing it, it, it's important, it's crucial, you must do it, but it's not enough if you go out here and just don't put it into practice. Part of learning involves doing. Doing cements learning. Zach is a baseball player. He loves baseball. And if Zach and I, if we just went through the, the offseason and I'm like, hey, Zach, we're just going to watch a bunch of videos on pitching and we're going to uh, read some books on pitching. And we don't even need to go to the first practice. You're just going to read these books, watch these videos, and then you're going to get the first practice. You're going to get out there and or the first game you're going to get out there and throw. That is not going to go well. Right? What does Zach have to do to be an effective? He has to have that knowledge, but then he's got to get on a mound and he's got to develop an arm slot. It's called tunneling. A pitcher has to develop tunnel over and over and over again, applying the knowledge. But that arm has to keep doing that off a mound over and over and over again. And it's that practice. And that's why oftentimes you'll, you'll see pitchers, even in the major league, they get swatted around all over the place at the beginning of the season because it takes a while for that arm slot to get established. And, so, and Paul's telling us the same thing here. You can't just hear it. You got to do it over and over and over again. Hebrews um, tells us uh, by by constant practice, by constant practice is how we grow. Train yourself by constant practice. Think and do. And it concludes, right? The reward, the God of peace will be with me. It's the result. Not the precursor. I'm not going to do if I find, feel peace. Usually when I'm talking about feeling peace, I mean what's convenient and what's easy. And what's going to cause me the less dissonance in my mind. No, I think and I do. And sometimes that's going to involve some hard things. But then the God of peace will be with me. So what do you do? Again, expose yourself. That will contribute to right thinking. When there's a missionary here speaking... You need to come. You need to hear their stories. Your kids need to come. Your kids need to hear their stories. It puts their minds to greater things. Go to funerals, Christian music. Be present. The Lord's table, the LMS, that we're here, that we're present, that we're participating, that lifts my mind. That affects my thinking. Hearing stories from faithful people, making ourselves and our kids do devotions. Even secular philosophers back in Paul's day got. This is Plutarch. Plutarch writes this, it is true that the thought and recollection of good men almost instantly comes to mind and gives support to those who are making progress towards virtue. And in every onset of the emotions and in all difficulties keeps them upright and saves them from falling. Here's a guy who's not even interacting with the word of God and saying, if you think on right things, it stabilizes you. How much more for us who have the authoritative word of God to think on and the virtues that God has given us to think on. By the way, the Psalms are a great playbook for this. The psalmist, over and over again, reflecting on God's goodness, noble thoughts, beautiful thoughts, God in his beauty, God in his temple, the faithfulness of God, and amidst their struggle and depression and anxiety, that's where they find peace. And we get it, right? Listen, some of us really struggle with this. And there are times in our lives, we've tried to be so careful as we preach through this series that, that some of us, our, our minds need help. We get that in my family right now, trust me. There's medications, there's things that God given us, so it doesn't come as automatically for some as others. We get, I want you to know we're with you. We understand that. 
And that's part of the brokenness of our world. But at the same time, we're called to do our part, to do as much as we can do, as faithfully as we can do it, to control what we can control. Think and do leads to peace. I'll close with this. Spencer, come on up. This is from, uh, by the way, I made it through a sermon without a World War II illustration. This is from uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. I'll close with this. This is when Atticus is explaining something to his daughter's scout. By the way, isn't it read To Kill a Mockingbird? Isn't it funny how they call their dad by his first name throughout the whole, Atticus. Atticus is talking to scout and he says this, Scout, every lawyer gets at least one case in his lifetime that affects him personally. This one's mine, I guess. You might hear some ugly talk about it at school, but do one thing for me, if you will. You just hold your head high and keep those fists down. No matter what anyone says to you, don't you let them get your goat. Try fighting with your head for a change. It's a good one, even if it does resist learning. Try fighting with your head. It's a good one even if it does resist learning.